On May 24, 2019, Jennifer Dulos, a 50-year-old mother of five, dropped her kids off at school in the wealthy suburb of New Canaan, Connecticut. And then she disappeared. This is one of those cases that the entire country was obsessed with. But I feel like the supermom headlines meant that in a lot of the coverage I saw, the complexity of Jennifer as a person got lost. And so did the story of what was really going on behind the scenes in her marriage. Now, a mom of five can't just drop off the face of the earth unnoticed. So when Jennifer's nanny, Lauren Alameda, got to her house at 11.30 that morning, she immediately noticed that things inside the house seemed off. Jennifer's 2017 black Suburban was gone, but her Range Rover was in the garage. Now, Lauren knew that Jennifer had told her she planned to drive that car to a doctor's appointment in New York City that morning. Also, Lauren saw Jennifer's purse inside the house. Lauren fed the kids and waited, but Jennifer never came home. And by the afternoon, Lauren and some of Jennifer's friends who'd been trying to reach her were frantic. They described Jennifer as incredibly reliable, especially when it came to her kids. And after they made some calls and figured out that Jennifer never made that doctor's appointment, they called the New Canaan police. Sometimes, as we know from this podcast and others, families can get frustrated when the police don't immediately act on a potential missing persons case. But that did not happen here. The New Canaan Police Department was on their game. When they heard the circumstances of the case, they knew immediately that this was something they needed to take very seriously. So police officers came to Jennifer's house and went inside. When they opened the garage, they saw signs of what they believed to be a struggle. According to search warrants that were later unsealed by New Canaan Police Department in Connecticut and the Connecticut State Police, around 400 in total, there were bloodstains on the Range Rover's hood, bumper, and fender that were a DNA match to Jennifer. Her cell phone was inside the car. It had been turned off. Police also found shoe impressions that led them to believe there had been a cleanup. Then, they found Jennifer's Suburban, abandoned in Waveney Park, an area about three miles away. This is an area that's frequented by moms in Lululemon pants doing their morning walk, but it's also fairly remote, and there are no surveillance cameras nearby. As soon as Jennifer's friends and family told police that Jennifer was going through a messy divorce, her estranged husband, Fotis Dulos, became the focus of the police investigation. But the case was about to get a lot crazier. Eventually, it would involve Fotis's girlfriend, a shady lawyer, financial fraud, a shallow grave, and a plot that could have been an HBO limited series. What really happened to Jennifer Dulos? I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. Police in New Canaan, Connecticut, were looking for mother of five, Jennifer Dulos. They called her estranged husband, Fotis, who lived 70 miles away in Farmington with his girlfriend, Michelle. Fotis was an obvious first call for police due to the couple's impending divorce. Police asked him to come into the station in New Canaan, and he agreed. But the next day, when Fotis arrived, he had his lawyer with him, and the lawyer told investigators in no uncertain terms that Fotis would not be cooperating with the investigation. They were able to confiscate Fotis' cell phone, but without a warrant, they couldn't get access to his data. 
So while they waited for the court orders to come through on the phone, they started tracking down Jennifer's last movements. They began searching video footage. They immediately went public and appealed to anyone who had been in the area that day to share their footage. A neighbor provided surveillance footage that showed Jennifer coming home in the Suburban after dropping the kids off at school. She was seen on camera pulling into the driveway and then the garage at 8.05 a.m. The Suburban was next seen on camera leaving the house at 10.25 a.m., but the driver could not be clearly seen. And according to warrants that were later made public, police did not believe that Jennifer was driving. By now, they had developed a theory that the killer was waiting for her when she got home, killed her, and drove her body out in her own car. So whatever happened to Jennifer had to have happened during that two-hour window. Fotis's lawyer suggested an alternative theory. He said that Jennifer could have staged her own disappearance. A lot of the media reports that came out at the time described Jennifer simply as supermom. But who was the woman behind the headlines? Jennifer's childhood was one of extraordinary wealth and privilege. She grew up in Brooklyn Heights and later on Fifth Avenue in New York City. Her dad, Hilliard Farber, ran a brokerage firm. Her mom, Gloria, stayed at home after getting her doctorate in early childhood education. WTIC-TV interviewed some of Jennifer's friends, who described her as funny, smart, and, despite her silver spoon background, soft-spoken and kind. As a teen, she loved sports, especially squash, and also loved Madonna and Jennifer Beals in Flashdance, according to the Hartford Current. Jennifer attended Brown University, and that's where she first met Fotis Dulos. Fotis didn't come from money. He immigrated from Greece, and after graduation, he built a career as a financial consultant. He was handsome and charming and had a personality that made people want to be around him. But Fotis and Jennifer didn't date in college. They were just casual acquaintances. After college, Jennifer came back to New York City. According to her friends and family, Jennifer always harbored dreams of becoming a writer. She attended New York University's Tisch School of the Arts and got a master's degree in writing. In 2003, she wrote about running into Fotis randomly at the Aspen Airport in a blog that was excerpted in the Hartford Current. She wrote that they saw each other, quote, and serendipity cast its spell. We had a special chemistry together, always, something special and precious, and we were careful to be careful with one another until lightning finally struck, end quote. The chemistry seemed to be instant, but there was one problem. Fotis was still married to his first wife, Hilary Aldama. Exactly when his relationship with Jennifer turned romantic isn't totally clear, but by July 2004, according to the newspaper, Fotis Dulos was divorced. And in August 2004, he married Jennifer. For a while, they seemed to be the perfect family. They went on to have five children, twin boys, a twin boy and girl, and a baby girl, all within about a six-year period. In 2012, they moved into the 15,000-square-foot, multi-million-dollar mansion in Farmington that was designed by Fotis. By now, Fotis had founded a company called The Four Group Incorporated that specialized in buying homes, tarting them up for wealthy clientele, and then flipping them, according to the Hartford Current. Meanwhile, Jennifer threw herself into her role as a full-time mom of five. Her life became all about the kids' activities, and there were a lot, including art, ballet, soccer, tennis, ice skating, hockey, horseback riding, and skiing. Fotis taught the two oldest boys to ski, and by the time they were six, they had national rankings. But over time, like so many couples, Jennifer and Fotis appear to be living increasingly separate lives. 
If you read through her old blog postings, many of which can still be found on the Wayback Machine, it's a window into her loneliness. A blog posting attributed to Jennifer from February 8, 2012 read, quote, I do wish for one moment, though, in this new house with Fotis, alone, after the kids have gone to bed, to pop some champagne, even if I don't drink more than a thimbleful of anything nowadays, to toast to this new structure, to our family, to this fresh and lovely start, to commune with my husband, really, end quote. Then, in spring 2017, friends of Jennifer's told investigators that she got a shock. She learned that Fotis was having an affair with a woman named Michelle Traconis. Michelle had had a jet-set lifestyle as well. The Hartford Current described her as an international businesswoman and the ex-wife of an Argentinian ski champion. At one point, she worked in Abu Dhabi as the publicist for a sheik. She later worked as a publicist at a ski resort in Argentina. When she first met Fotis, Michelle and her daughter lived in Vail, Colorado. According to court papers cited by People magazine, Jennifer said that she confronted her husband about the affair, and he told her that not only was he not ending it, he planned to move Michelle and her young daughter into the family's house in Farmington. Jennifer said that he asked her to sign a custody agreement. She said that when she refused, he flew into a rage. The next day, Jennifer claimed she learned that Fotis had purchased an unregistered handgun from a friend, which she said he told her he needed for protection. Jennifer wrote in court documents, quote, I am afraid of my husband. I know that filing for divorce and filing this motion will enrage him. I know that he will retaliate by trying to harm me in some way. He has the attitude that he must always win at all costs, end quote. Jennifer filed for divorce from Fotis on June 20th, 2017. She moved out of the family home and into a rental house in New Canaan. At this point, Jennifer was also claiming in court depositions that some of the kids were showing signs of depression, and she said that Fotis was an unfit father. He was too intense and demanding with the children, she said, and he had a scary temper. She said that Fotis had told her about sickening revenge fantasies he had during his marriage and said he exhibited irrational, unsafe, bullying, threatening, and controlling behavior, according to the Providence Journal. Fotis's friends and colleagues came to his defenses and said they had never seen any sign of this kind of temper. An official from the Hellenic Water Ski and Wakeboard Federation released a statement on behalf of Fotis. The statement, obtained by WTIC-TV, described Fotis as a calm, balanced, respectful, kind person who was, quote, a caring father, not only for his kids' skiing activities, but for every aspect of their daily lives, end quote. The statement said that Fotis was the one who coached and emotionally supported his kids in sports, while Jennifer was never there. Fotis claimed that he was the full-time father. He said that Jennifer locked herself away to write, was mentally unstable, and wanted nothing to do with the kids, according to court documents. And the couple's marriage wasn't the only thing that had been struggling. Court papers show that the four group was in a deep financial hole. And while most of the media was focused on the criminal case, as was so many red-collar cases, a lot of the answers could be found in the civil cases being filed against Fotis. The four group looked successful on the surface. But in reality, it turned out that Jennifer's dad, Hilliard Farber, had been basically bankrolling Fotis's entire business for years. According to a complaint filed by the attorney representing Gloria Farber, in 2004, her husband started to fund Fotis's business. Hillier would loan Fotis money to buy the properties, and Fotis, who was a talented contractor, and his company, The Four Group, would do improvements on the houses. 
Then he would resell them, pay Hilliard back his investment, and keep the profit. This worked well for a long time, but eventually in the post-recession years, the business started to slow down. In 2015, Hilliard loaned Fotis $1.5 million to buy a property on Hemlock Road. But when that property sold in 2016, according to the complaint, Fotis only paid back $500,000. Then Hilliard Farber died, and attorneys for Gloria wanted Fotis to pay up. In court documents, Fotis stated that while his net monthly income totaled $5,226.53, his monthly expenses added up to $9,769.30. He claimed to be millions of dollars in debt. So between the civil claims filed by Gloria's attorneys and his divorce deposition, Fotis was being grilled and challenged about every single cent he had spent on that business and his accounting methods. He was questioned about every business expense, including the one when he traveled to Greece with Michelle and another trip where he traveled to Florida to commence a company in Miami. He claimed that trip as a business expense, even though he admitted that he never actually set up any company in Florida. And then there were the business trips that took place during ski season in Vail, Colorado, where Michelle lived at the time. Gloria's attorneys asked the judge for permission to conduct a forensic examination of the four groups' books and records. After Jennifer disappeared, Fotis Dulos tried hard to downplay the divorce dispute to the public and the press. He sat down for an interview with Dateline. He said that he was happy with Michelle and had what he called a beautiful life. The divorce was unpleasant, he said, but he was moving on. But the Stanford Advocate reported that in the background, the battle between Fotis and Jennifer Dulos and between Fotis and his mother-in-law were building to nightmarish proportions. In court, hundreds of motions got filed over finances and custody. Jennifer had custody of the kids, and Fotis had supervised visitation every other weekend. However, the judge had recently banned Michelle from interacting with Fotis's kids at all, and this is while they were all living together. Superior Court Judge Donna Heller said that Fotis Dulos, quote, had pursued his own self-interest and exposed the children to his paramour, Michelle Traconis, and her daughter, in complete disregard of the court's prior orders and the effect his actions were having on the children, end quote. After Jennifer moved out of the home that the couple shared and Fotis moved Michelle in, he stopped paying mortgage on the property. So one of Gloria's attorneys filed a motion to foreclose on the house. Now Fotis was on the verge of losing everything— his business, his jet-set lifestyle, his ability to bankroll flights to exotic destinations with his girlfriend, his kids, his reputation, and his home, when Jennifer disappeared. The circumstantial civil evidence was piling up. But on the criminal side, the police knew that they needed more. And Fotis was a defendant with money. I'm sure that police were feeling the pressure and knew they couldn't afford to make any mistakes. Fotis also had an alibi— Michelle told police that she and Fotis had been intimate in the shower at around 8.15 a.m. Then she said she went out to run some errands and didn't see him again until she came back home that afternoon and saw Fotis there with his lawyer, Kent Moeni. But police had evidence that suggested otherwise, that Fotis had been a new Canaan on the day Jennifer disappeared. So they were taking a hard look at Fotis's girlfriend, Michelle, and asking if his airtight alibi could have some leaks. In the search for Jennifer Dulos, police were going through the camera footage, and what they found was shocking. At 6.36 a.m., 
Police saw a red Toyota Tacoma truck registered to Fotis' company, the Ford Group, traveling south on the Merritt Parkway between Farmington and New Canaan. The truck is seen again at 7.36 a.m. in New Canaan, just a short drive from Waveney Park. Now, Waveney Park does not have surveillance cameras, something that the killer probably counted on. But what they didn't count on was the school bus that passed by that morning. At 7.05 a.m., footage from the school bus video shows the Toyota Tacoma parked on Lapham Road in Waveney Park. The vehicle was still there at 7.57 when the bus passed by again. Lapham Road is about 2.5 miles from Jennifer's house. Police believe that Fotis drove that truck there, then walked or jogged to Jennifer's house and was lying in wait when she came home. Between 8.05 and 10.25, they believe he killed her, did the cleanup, and loaded the body into her suburban. According to an arrest warrant, Fotis was, quote, believed to be operating the victim's vehicle, which is carrying the body of Jennifer Dulos and a number of other items associated with a cleanup, which occurred in the garage of the residence, end quote. Then, investigators theorize, Fotis drove Jennifer's Suburban back to where he had parked the truck in Waveney Park, transferred the body into the Tacoma, and started driving back toward Farmington. At 11.12, the Tacoma was spotted heading north in service station footage. It was spotted again at 11.25 and 11.40 and 12, heading north, and police say these times are consistent with the truck driving at a constant speed along that route. At 12.22, Fotis's neighbor's surveillance camera shows the truck pulling into his home at 80 Mountain Spring Road in Farmington. They found more video footage of Fotis's other vehicle, a black Ford Raptor truck, later that night driving down a four-mile stretch in Hartford with a woman in the passenger seat who resembled Michelle, according to court documents obtained by the Hartford Current. The truck stopped several times, around 30 in all, and the man, who police say they believed was Fotis, threw garbage bags into trash cans. Investigators found some of the garbage bags, opened them up, and found clothes and household items inside, including things like kitchen sponges with blood on them. They also found zip ties. The forensic team did their testing and were able to figure out that the blood was a match to Jennifer Dulos, according to arrest warrants cited by the Stanford Advocate. They spent several weeks at a nearby landfill digging through tons of garbage, but they didn't find Jennifer's body. Fotis's lawyer pointed out that the image on the camera could not be clearly identified. Police had to figure out how Fotis could have killed Jennifer, stashed her body somewhere, and done a cleanup in such a tight time frame. They were building an entire case basically on surveillance footage, which they never would have gotten if they had not acted immediately. After they went public, an employee of Fotis's came forward, and what he told police would break the case wide open. The employee, Powell Gemini, was a project manager at Fotis's construction company. He told police that he normally drove that Tacoma, but he said he became suspicious of his boss after he went to Fotis's home office in Farmington, where he often worked, on May 24th and discovered that his work truck was missing. So he went to another four group property on Mountain Spring Road. At around 5 p.m., he said he saw Fotis and Michelle there leaning up against the Toyota Tacoma. He said that they seemed surprised to see him. According to the arrest affidavit, Powell asked Fotis what they were up to, and Fotis said they were cleaning. But Powell said they, quote, were not holding any cleaning products and there were no products near the vehicles, end quote. He said that Fotis had asked to keep the work truck, but Powell told him that he wanted it back. And after he got the truck back, he said to his surprise, Fotis had had the car washed and detailed. And then he did something else that seemed odd to Powell. Fotis insisted that Powell swap the seats out in the Tacoma with seats from an old Porsche. 
Paul did what his boss wanted, but then he kept the seats, and later, he gave them to police. And forensic testing showed that on those seats was blood that was a match to Jennifer. Police arrested Fotis and Michelle in June 2019. They were charged with tampering with or fabricating physical evidence related to the camera footage of them in Hartford. They pled not guilty to the charges. Both were released on bond in order to wear GPS monitoring devices. After Michelle was rearrested, some members of the media began openly speculating that she may have turned against Fotis. It emerged in the press that she had changed her story. She was now admitting to police that she was not with Fotis on the morning Jennifer disappeared. And she said that she had been alone with Kent and Fotis's phone. When the phone rang, she said that Kent told her to answer it. She now believes she told police to establish an alibi for Fotis. She also admitted that she helped Fotis clean the Tacoma because, she said, he told her he spilled coffee in it. When police asked her about the truck being clean, Michelle said, according to the warrant, that she thought he had the truck clean because, quote, all the evidence says the body of Jennifer at some point was in there, end quote. The warrant also mentioned handwritten notes that police found in Fotis's trash that authorities refer to in court documents as alibi scripts. Basically, this was a detailed list of activities that supposedly took place on May 24th and 25th. But Michelle admitted that these lists included a lot of events that never actually happened. Police got another possible piece of the puzzle when Powell told them that a few months before Jennifer disappeared, Fotis had asked him to repair a vintage 10-speed bicycle Police found more surveillance footage that showed a man wearing a black hoodie, who they believed to be Fotis, riding the very recognizable bike from Waveney Park toward Jennifer's house on May 24th. So Fotis would have blended right in with the scores of fitness fanatics biking through the leafy suburban area. Detective Kimball said in the affidavit, quote, video from a residential surveillance system showed a person riding a bicycle in a northwest direction along Weed Street. The cyclist appears to be dressed in all dark clothing, with a hood pulled down low to hide their face, end quote. Then came another crazy twist in the case. Police said they believe Fotis may have actually been trying to frame Powell. They pointed out that he'd recently cut his hair short in the same style as his employee. There's also another possibility. On the day when police say Jennifer was killed, Powell was due to work at a job site at Sturbridge Hill Road in New Canaan, near Jennifer's house. So Fotis may have assumed if investigators saw the truck on camera, they would just assume that Paul was driving it to his work site. Paul was getting nervous. While he told police that he considered Fotis a friend, he also said Fotis had warned him about speaking out, saying that Paul only had a green card, which talking to authorities could put in jeopardy. Finally, police arrested Fotis Dulos and charged him with murder. And in another stranger-than-fiction moment, Fotis's lawyer, Kent Moeni, was arrested as well in January 2020 and charged with evidence tampering. Police say that Kent, an immigration lawyer and personal friend of Fotis's, helped Fotis fake an alibi. And there were rumors that Kent may have done more to help his old friend. Members of a gun club frequented by Kent told police that they saw what they said looked like a shallow grave with bags of lime in it. Police searched there, but they found no evidence of Jennifer's remains. Since Kent, unlike Fotis, could not afford a $2 million bond, he was taken into custody to await trial. His license to practice law was suspended. Kent has repeatedly denied any knowledge of or involvement with Jennifer's death. There was even more video coming out of the Ford Raptor registered to Fotis, this time with a man who police believed to be Fotis putting something into a storm drain near Garden Street. 
Detectives later searched this area and recovered two Connecticut license plates that had been altered with adhesive and tape, the warrant said. The plate was connected to a canceled registration for a 2007 Chevy Suburban belonging to Fotis Dulos. Fotis's lawyer, Norm Pattis, offered up another wild theory for Jennifer's disappearance. He and some other people said they believed that Jennifer could have pulled off a plot reminiscent of author Gillian Flynn's 2012 novel, Gone Girl. The hit book and movie tells the story about a woman who finds out that her husband is having an affair, so she fakes her own death, leaving blood behind, and attempts to get revenge by framing him. Norm Pattis suggested that Jennifer could have faked her own death in what he called a revenge-suicide hypothesis, according to the New York Times. He told the New York Post, quote, This is a person who has a pretty florid imagination and motives to use it to hurt Mr. Dulos, end quote. He also said that Jennifer had written a 500-page manuscript that was allegedly similar to Gone Girl. And some of Jennifer's friends did say that she had a brilliant enough mind to pull off that kind of plan. But if Jennifer did pull a Gone Girl, what would her motive have been? Jennifer's friends and family have insisted that no matter what feelings she had toward Fotis, she would never voluntarily leave her children. So Fotis was at home wearing a court-ordered GPS bracelet. He's charged with killing his estranged wife, and he has his ex-girlfriend talking to police. And incredibly, at that time, he struck up a new relationship with a North Carolina financial advisor named Anna Curry. Fotis listed Curry as his best friend in court filings, and she helped him fund his $6 million bail. But the British tabloid, the Daily Mail, hinted that there may be more to their relationship than just friendship. They wrote, quote, Sources confirm that Curry, who bears a striking resemblance to Dulos's missing wife Jennifer and his ex-girlfriend Michelle Traconis, who has been charged with conspiracy to commit murder, was in a romantic relationship with him, end quote. Fotis definitely seemed to have a type. Like Jennifer and Michelle, Anna is tall and lean and athletic with long brown hair. She's also smart. She's a graduate of Duke University. On January 28, 2020, the day Fotis was supposed to appear at a bail hearing, police found him unresponsive at his home in Farmington. His Suburban was running in the garage, and the door was closed. They found him inside the car, not breathing, according to the police report. Paramedics came, someone started CPR, and they were able to get a pulse and take him to the hospital. Inside the Suburban, police found photos of Fotis and his children, Tylenol PM, and electrical tape, according to a police report. They also found a note that was signed by Fotis. It read, quote, If you are reading this, I am no more, end quote, and said that he did not want to spend an hour more in jail for something I had nothing to do with. Enough is enough. Anna told police that she was supposed to drive Fotis to court that day, but at the last minute, she said he asked her to take some money out of the bank for him. While she was running the errand, she said, he called her and told her he would just meet her at the courthouse. While she was driving to court, one of Fotis' attorneys noticed that his client's GPS showed that he was still at the house, according to police. Fotis Dulos was pronounced dead at 5.32 p.m. on January 30th at the hospital. After that, Fotis' family hit back at the state of Connecticut and at the media. They blamed the press for what they called sensationalized headlines and the public for being too quick to call him a monster. They released a statement. It read, in part, quote, 
Suicide, the last word anyone who knew Fotis would associate with him. Caring and nurturing father, son, brother, and uncle. Achiever, hard worker, fighter, loyal friend, accomplished sportsman, bookworm, a great cook, unparalleled host. This was Fotis. He could walk into a room and immediately light it up. He was the man everyone wanted to befriend. Fotis was a loving man, much loved by those who actually knew him. We, the family of this great man, feel let down by the state that pursued and harassed him and us relentlessly and with no mercy, without ever giving him or us a chance to speak our truth and to share, with a world that was too quick to call him a monster, our story. We feel devastated that a man only 52 years of age found himself in a dead end where he saw taking his own life as the only way to be granted peace, end quote. Fotis's family said they would not bury him in Farmington because they feared desecration of his grave. Instead, they said that Fotis's final resting place would be his birthplace, Greece. They said, quote, Are we bitter? Yes. We lost a much-loved and lovely man to a form of mass hysteria. Fotis was no killer. Now he's dead. The case involving Jennifer's disappearance has not ended. In some respects, it now begins anew, end quote. A judge dropped the case against Fotis posthumously, but Michelle Traconis's fate is still up in the air. She's currently free on a $2.1 million bond. She has pleaded not guilty to all of the previous charges filed against her. In August 2020, the state's attorney filed new charges against her of second-degree hindering prosecution, tampering with physical evidence, and conspiracy to commit tampering with physical evidence, according to NBC Connecticut. Some of her bail restrictions were removed in September 2020. She's no longer under house arrest, but the judge is still requiring her to wear a GPS bracelet. At this point... She and Kent Moweni are still awaiting trial. But so many questions are unanswered. What exactly was Kent's role? And how much did Michelle know? Police say she may have been manipulated, but could she really have been in the car while her boyfriend made 30 stops to dump bloody material in garbage bags without asking why? And of course, the biggest question of all, where is Jennifer's body? Investigators have searched multiple properties owned by Fotis and his company, in Avon, Farmington, and New Canaan. But so far, Jennifer's body has not been found. I find myself drawn to the property on Mountain Home Road. Police timelines don't seem to leave time for photos to dump a body along the route from New Canaan to Farmington. And people tend to do what they know. He's a contractor. He knows how to lay down cement. I think it's highly possible that Jennifer is buried somewhere on one of Fotis' properties. In an interview with Connecticut Insider, the two lead investigators in the case, Detective John Kimball and New Canaan police officer Thomas Patton, say they are hopeful new evidence may finally lead them to the 50-year-old mother's remains. But whatever happens going forward, five children are now left without a mother or a father. Jennifer's children are reportedly continuing to live with their grandmother, Gloria Farber, in Manhattan. Family friends say they are doing well. The family released a statement. It read, quote, it is a testament to her deeply loving influence as a parent that Jennifer's children are healthy and well. They're safe and surrounded by love and support. Gloria, their grandmother and guardian, is also healthy and well, for which we are so grateful during this precarious time. End quote. Red Collar is an Audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Melissa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com.
So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Oh!